Welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. Uh, it's time for In the News, our, our fortnightly look at the news stories that have been making the headlines. And with me is our National Director, John Stevens. Morning, John. Morning, Phil. And uh, Adrian Reynolds, our Head of National Ministries. Hello, Morning, Phil. Adrian. Hello, My John. name's uh, Phil Topham, Executive Director. Uh, well, let's start, shall we, with um, a, a, a massive human tragedy, brothers. Um, so this is the earthquake, Turkey, Syria. Um, many, many thousands have died. Uh, many more are expected to die, given that they've survived the earthquake, but now haven't got the um, the, the shelter, the, the protection uh, they need uh, against the elements. Uh, just, uh, just a massive human tragedy. It is a human tragedy, Phil, and um, it's. It, it, I mean, watching the pictures, it's just a very painful experience, isn't it? And um, it, it's a reminder that actually, the brokenness of the world we live in. Um, affects all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Actually, it's interesting. It's put Turkey, that part of Turkey, Syria, back on the map. It's largely been off the map. I think displaced by Ukraine. We'll talk about Ukraine later, perhaps. Um, but actually, the the ongoing situation there, anyway, human in humanitarian terms, has been really, really difficult. Mm. It's it's already a difficult place, and and this on top of everything else has been heartbreaking. And in actually, you know, you you watch the um, you know, you watch the pictures of a little child being yeah. pulled out of the of, of the rubble or whatever it is. Um, it's it is heartbreaking, and and as, as I understand it, made worse because actually, it's not just focused on one city. There's lots and lots of towns and you know rescuers are saying we don't know which town to go to and we do go to a town we don't know um you know where to take people who are injured and all that sort of thing so so actually you know poor infrastructure anyway mm. affected by civil war and and fighting anyway and um you know great humanitarian problems anyway and then this on top of everything else is yeah you're absolutely right it's heartbreaking some of the before and after pictures were horrifying weren't they mm. Yeah, and I think um, you know, it, at times like this, you, you ask questions, don't you? And um, I guess you have practical questions. You know, why is it these buildings weren't built to withstand earthquakes and those kinds of questions? But I think people especially have theological questions. It, interesting, we did um, uh, we had a sermon on John four at the um, at the weekend, part of a guest, guest service at church. And in our small group this week, we were just asking um, in the small group that I lead, we were just asking what are some of the common objections that people come up with, and how does how does the gospel, how does the mm. encountering Jesus overcome them and this is right up there right why, and this why was number a, one yeah why does a good this god allow one. suffering yeah. why, why these earthquakes so, you know whether yeah. that's personal you know why does this happen to me or whether it's on a on a huge scale and um, sometimes people can reconcile things that happen to them a bit more easily than they can you know eight and a half thousand people or however many it's however many it's going to be um and and actually they do raise big questions don't they and i i know we as church leaders we need to be well equipped to answer those and those are the questions that people will be asking, won't they, John? People will come to church leaders and ask, you know, why why can God uh, allow this in the world? I think that's right. And of course, you have to remember, you know, there are periodically nat natural disasters. So of these break into our consciousness on a, a regular basis. I think in the modern world, because of the modern media communications, they're brought right into our living rooms in a way that wouldn't have been the case in the past. So we can really see the, the tragedy. And our hearts go out to the people who are kind of caught up, affected, bereaved, uh, killed. I think it also touches our hearts because we sort of, um, in a sense, can imagine ourselves being in that situation. Mm. Here is something that appears to be totally unexpected, completely undeserved. We like to think that we're in control and that we like to think that we can kind of ensure that our lives will be safe and protected. And these kinds of events remind us just that that is not something we can at all take for granted. But I, I think the question about sort of why does God allow this is, is uh, inevitably raised because these appear to be kind of acts of... Um, uh, 
kind of completely sort of without any moral reason, without any explanation. It's not that people seem to have done things that would deserve this. It's would, not like a war, this. is it? Or Absolutely. A, or a terrorist attack. Um, yeah. uh, but I think that, I mean, the Bible helps us understand. Uh, mm. It doesn't necessarily explain why God allows particular um, instances of natural disaster to occur. It does tell us that these events in the world are, are part and parcel of living in a fallen world that is not the way that God intended it to be. Mm. So God did create the world for there to be natural disasters. He didn't create the world for there to be death at all. Mm. Um, he created a, a good world that was in, under his good rule. Um, and the Bible says that as a result of human rebellion against God, um, as a result of sin, um, the good world that God created uh, was cursed. Um, it was no longer fully good in the way that it had been, and that natural disasters are part and parcel of living in a in a fallen world. Um, and there are, are cosmic forces at work. One of the kind of, I think, the features of uh, kind of the fall that we underestimate is that Satan leads mankind astray. There are satanic evil forces at work as well. I mean, creation in sense was bringing about a good ordered world um, that overcame chaos. And one of the consequences of the fall is that chaos reinvades. So I, I think um, the Bible doesn't explain everything to us in ways that means that we can understand every instance of how and why something happens. It does give us the big picture mm. of saying this is a result ultimately of living in a fallen world that's under judgment um, where sort of um, destructive cosmic forces are, are at work to seek to undo the good the good work of God. And the Bible actually takes these natural disasters and says that when they happen, oh, absolutely right that our hearts go out to those who suffer, but we must be reminded ourselves that we live in a fallen world uh, under judgment. And all of these things are kind of like signs, pointers, reminders of an ultimate judgment that's mm. going to become, that's going to be far worse than any natural disaster. Mm that we observe. I mean, Jesus himself spoke about the coming of the end times, the, the last day, the day when every human being will be required to give an account to God. It will be a terrifying and an awful day. The language that's used in the Bible to describe that is often the language of natural disasters, because that's this kind of the emotional picture that helps us understand yeah, you see what's, that in Psalm 46, for example, don't you? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so wars, rumours of wars, they are anticipations of a great coming end. And of course, um, uh, actually, that is both a warning to us to get right with God. Mm. For the Christian, it, it's also a perspective that says we shouldn't be surprised that these things happened. Jesus said they would continue until the great climactic end. They also, in a strange way, point us to our hope because they remind us it won't be like this forever. Mm. Um, uh, that actually, when that great end comes, God will remake the world. He will recreate it. Just as, in a sense, Jesus triumphed over death and was resurrected to glorious new mm, life. Mm, mm. So the entire creation will be remade, will be renewed um, to restore that original goodness. Chaos will be utterly defeated. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah. Sin will be removed. And there will be the very world that we long for. So as we look at these kind of natural disasters, it's absolutely right that we want to give support, mm. grateful for all the agencies that are working there. And Christians respond to national natural disaster. We think of, you know, kind of in the book of Acts, when they hear of a famine, Christians give to mm. su support. We ought to do that. But it also drives us to remember our hope mm. um, and realise that only ultimately in the return of Jesus and the renewal of everything will we be in the world that, that we long for. Yeah. Amen. You've looked at, you've opened <laughs> Luke like, 13 now, because I, that, you know, I, that Jesus touches on this, doesn't yeah, he? With the tower it's interesting, Ke and, um, yeah. Keller, Keller preached Luke 13 after um, the 9-11 uh, um, attacks. Mm. Um, and it's interesting in Luke 13 because you get um, you get a man-made attack yeah. and then you get a, a, a seemingly an a kind of a, a catastrophe without explanation. So so you get Pilate who's mixed the blood of, of, of Galileans 
with their sacrifices. So, you know, the idea is that there's some sort of terrorist work. Yeah, like a brutal... Violence, so there's a brutal yeah, yeah. killing. And at the same time, you've got the tower in Siloam that falls on people and crushes them, which doesn't seem to have an explanation. Perhaps it was an earthquake, you know, something like that. But the question's being asked um, in there is, were they more sinful? Yeah, than that's right. Jesus so Jesus, is, Jesus yeah. is being asked a theological question about it and, and strikingly doesn't give that answer that people want. He actually says this is a call to repentance and then tells a very interesting parable. Um, and the parable is that the, the fig tree hasn't been bearing fruit. Um, and actually, it's got one more year, it, you know, just one more year, one more year. So uh, there is a sense of urgency, I think, that is injected into life when we see these um, catastrophes, both for us to be right with God, but to call other people to be right with God as well. I think it's a reminder that time is short. We are living in the end times and time is short. And we've got to get on with the work of preaching the good news um, of of Jesus who saves from the coming judgment. Mm. And and that's that's the work of the that's the primary work of the church, isn't it? John, you said um, be wars and rumours of wars. Let's move on to talk about Ukraine. That is a war that is relentless and continuing. Um, President Zelensky was um, in Britain earlier in the week, uh, meeting with the Prime Minister, um, speaking to Parliament, basically asking for more more help, military help, um, to, to 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 wade off the the kind of Russian threat. Uh, this this is showing no signs of going away. And it, it is a war that we've been talking about for about 12 months now. And it, it's kind of on our doorstep, isn't it? And it, it just, it, it seems to come quite close to home when they're flying over and um, meeting with our parliament and asking for for, for planes to, to be sent to, to Ukraine. It feels like an escalation. Yeah. And I think at the moment we're in a very uncertain period. So um, in this year, the origin, original Russian invasion was kind of in a sense repelled, um, prevented, um, uh, all sorts of commentators describing failures in Russian military tactics. A kind of, we forget how optimism. close they were to Kiev. Yeah, I mean, they were very yeah. close. Yeah, they were fighting in the streets. Mm. Weren't they? Yeah. And, and um, you know, I'm no expert on this, but just reading the papers, it seems that the Russians are regrouping. They've been mobilising large numbers of forces. Some have spoken of 300,000, 500,000 that, 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 that are available. Um, and the prospect of a renewed invasion, maybe a renewed attack on, on Kiev. So I think, I think at one level it it seems a very dangerous situation. Um, we've got used, haven't we, to kind of wars in which kind of the West defeats sort of um, less well-equipped armies pretty quickly. We're used to quick resolutions and outcomes um, because of that technological superiority. Here we essentially have a clash between two kind of technologically very sophisticated um, armed forces. We've been supplying weaponry to um Ukraine, there is, in a sense, a, a kind of a war by proxy between the West and NATO and uh, and Russia. And that carries all sorts of dangers of that um, sort of um, escalating mm. as we seem to be more and more drawn in, providing training, then equipment, then more sophisticated equipment. Um, has tones of kind of Vietnam and getting getting drawn into that. So I mean, at one level, it's it's natural to be concerned a, 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 a about that. I think it's vital that we do be praying for our world leaders that they have wisdom to know how to respond um, uh, in uh, that that situation. I was reading something yesterday. It was talking about how we should be prepared for the Russians to make significant advances. That mm. that is kind of um, high, highly likely. So if the narrative has been the Russians have been defeated and that's it then um, I think we're probably going to find the next few months um, are going to show a very different sort of and that, story. And that's why Zelensky is, is out, isn't it? You know, he's out talking to people. Um, he's, he's asking for fighters, which will take, you know, it will take years to train mm. up mm. pilots for these fighters. 
So he, he, obviously he thinks it's a long-term thing yeah. and it's at a critical juncture, otherwise he wouldn't be out and about. And Russia have appointed their chief of general staff, their most senior military guy, to lead the mm-hmm. lead the, um, lead the the forces. So clearly they're taking it seriously. Just a, There was a little tiny leadership lesson that almost went without passing because in, in the sort of cosmic um, lesson of everything else that's going on. And and that was um, the way that um, the, the the visit of Zelensky was obviously kept secret, mm. and they're worried about an assassination attempt on him, and that was kept pretty secret in the UK. Um, it, his visit to the uh, to EU countries was largely scuppered because um, MEPs knew he was coming and couldn't keep quiet about it. Mm. They were they were boasting about it on Twitter accounts and things. You know, he's coming to see us, come to see me, and and that's basically undermined um, Zelensky's trip to the EU in terms of the safety and security. Mm. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that actually the um, you know even at this sort of strategic time, important time, there are leaders within our political structures who are who are playing things for their own ends, and and actually as a result, putting other people at risk, mm. and um, it. It's interesting. Just, just. I mean, it's it's not the main. I know it's not the main issue that's going on. But as a side issue, there is some interest there that self-interested leadership um, always puts other people at risk. Um, And actually, we we want to keep embracing and make sure that we're embracing a model of leadership which is putting others first. Mm. It's servant-hearted. It's thinking what is good for the building up of others. What is good for others. Um, all the time, rather than what is good for me. And and I think actually the social media world we work in. Um, and the, the very public world we work in often uh, tempts us and draws us away from that great goal. And here's, here's actually a great word example of just how, you know, a little tweet, oh, Zelensky's coming to see me, actually you know, really is dangerous, undermines other people. And and I think there is something there for us as leaders. We've got to be constantly thinking what serves mm. those we're called to serve. And, you know, following in the master's footsteps is about having a servant heart. God, I thought how we kind of respond to it as, as maybe Christian leaders, just as we were saying about earthquakes and wars, it's another reminder of the fallen world that we're in and the ultimate coming judgment. Um, I think for us as church leaders, as we speak into these situations, it's important to realize that we don't have to know everything. We don't have to have an answer for everything. Um, I think there's a great danger that we can think that sort of, you know, we, we've got to have an opinion and an understanding on, on every situation. And it's easy to fall into being an armchair military strategist and be interested in that. I can do that very easily. But there's a danger of translating that into what we preach and what we teach as if we've kind of got that understanding when we, we lack the understanding and, and we don't bear the responsibility. Mm. We need to recognise that, that that's in, in, in the hands um, uh, of others. So I think we need to be cautious and reticent. Whilst it's easy to oppose a aggression and invasion, for example, in Ukraine, what's the outcome? What's the solution? What, how does a, a sort of a settlement get reached is a far more complicated question over the kind of disputed territories and whether people in those territories want to be part of Russia or want to be part of the Ukraine. And, and at the moment, um, what's difficult to see is a negotiated settlement um, between between the parties that can be reached. We, we've got to, to some extent, kind of just recognise that we don't know what the other right and a sort of necessary mm. outcome of that is. Um, at the same time, I think it's a reminder to us we've got to keep keep on supporting the church and Christians and people in that in that situation. So huge amounts of money has been given to care for people in Ukraine, displaced people, refugees. And that's going to have to continue. As the war continues, that's going to be more and more needed, just as Ukraine needs military support. So it's going to need um, uh, sort of uh, support for those who are suffering. And the churches in particular are going to need 
significant support. So I'm one of the trustees of the European Missionary Fellowship, and we've been amazed that more than £1.4 million has been given for a Ukraine emergency fund mm. to help kind of support the church and Christians helping the church in, in Ukraine. Um, and I think that work is not going to end. It's going to continue to be needed. We're going to need to keep giving, keep supporting, mm. keep looking after the refugees who are in our own communities. We have a number of sort of Ukrainians kind of being cared for by Christian families here in Market Harbour. That is just going to have to be an ongoing, sustained commitment um, of care on the part of the church. I think it's also a reminder, Phil, that as Christian leaders, our job is to bring the word of God to bear Mm. on these situations. We're not political commentators. No, we're not. Mm. And uh, we might have political views. We, We might think actually there is a right and a wrong in cases. Sometimes that's very obvious. Um, but actually, we are we are preachers of the word. We're bringing the word of God to bear in people's lives. We're calling people to repentance and faith through the word of God and in the in the power of the Spirit. We're building up the saints by bringing the word of God to them and bringing it to bear. And I think that's really important um, in in these subjects to keep remembering that. And especially actually in a climate where I mean, extraordinarily, um, lead singer of Pink Floyd spoke to the UN yesterday hmm. about the Russian crisis and what was right and wrong about it. You think what's the lead singer of the Pink Floyd got to, mm. you know, to offer. Mm. <laughs> sort of, I mean, it's celebrity gone mad, really, in some mm. ways. Um, but actually, we have got something to say, but it's not something that we personally have to say. We've we've got what God wants to say, and that's where the word, word of God is so helpful, keeping the word of God central. Mm. And and we know from things that are going on in other places, if, if we lose that emphasis, we're in trouble. Well, let's move on then to talk about General Synod. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked at length uh, about the blessings that the bishops had proposed for um, same-sex marriage. Uh, they've been voted through by Synod this week. Um, so that wasn't a surprise, was it, that they were voted through? No, I don't. Well, personally, I don't think so. Um, I think once the bishops were um, proposing something and a majority of the bishops, not all the bishops, we ought to say there are some bishops who have taken a courageous stand. But once all, once the majority of the bishops were speaking, and it was interesting in the debate, um, it was very much um, uh, Sarah Manali, who was who was answering all the objections, uh, the Bishop of London on behalf of the House of Bishops. It was always we, the House of Bishops. It was never I. She was very careful. Mm. Um, so um, even if you're in a, in a minority in the House of Bishops, you've basically been outvoted. It seems to me, and and it was striking the way that every amendment was 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 put down um, and, and argued against by the bishops. So I suppose not surprising, very saddening, hmm. but perhaps not surprising. I think that's right, because the bishops had, in, in their proposal, they'd carefully constructed a way forwards that they thought would get through General Synod. So the whole idea of introducing sort of blessings for same-sex kind of marriages, but not introducing same-sex marriage and claiming that that was not a change in the church's doctrinal liturgy was a deliberate strategy because um, what that meant for Synod is if it had been a change in kind of liturgy and doctrine, it would have required a two-thirds majority of all of the houses of laity, clergy and bishops. Which and they the, deliberately avoided which that, they, didn't Which they, they yeah. wouldn't have yeah. got yeah. 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 because there's a significant sort of enough um, minority of people who and want to hold to biblical orthodoxy. But the way they've approached it, it only requires a 50% um, vote, or or in fact, it it would only be withdrawn if there was a 50% vote against it in any of those houses. And uh, all of the votes have been rejected by majorities of more than 50% in all the houses. So the bishop's proposal and the way they've crafted it as not a change in doctrine and liturgy almost ensured that it would be um, adopted. And in some sense, that that I think for many um, Orthodox people seems disingenuous because um, in effect it is changing uh, the doctrine and understanding of, of sin. It is introducing new prayers into the life of the church. It does de facto um, uh, sort of undermine the established doctrine and position mm. kind of of the church. I, I, th- I, mean, I, I watched the, the, the debate um, 
slightly painful in some ways. Two, two particular people who stood out, I think, were Ros Clark from Church Society, who spoke very carefully and logically and clearly and winsomely. Um, Ian Paul, who moved a couple of motions, um, who's a, a vicar up in Nottingham, uh, an evangelical up in Nottingham, um, also spoke very clearly. Um, his motion was defeated. The motion that um, uh, Ros Clark was was speaking to, she, she, she lost that vote, which is just a reminder, I think, that you can make careful, measured arguments um, and lose, hmm. even if they're correct. You can be very winsome. I mean, it's striking that um, not everybody was winsome by any means. And um, there were some really quite, I thought, some quite ugly exchanges of people who, um, on both sides of the debate, debate actually, but but Ros especially spoke very clearly and winsomely. But that doesn't win the day either. And, and I think it's just a reminder that if people have embraced a view of the a view that's in the world and brought it into the church, you can make theological arguments against it. Um, they don't always hold water. You you can speak very winsomely. You mm. you can't always persuade people. And it's just it's just a great reminder of the danger of worldliness. So how, how do we protect against yeah. that then? Because that's an important question, isn't it? We we talked a lot about this a couple of weeks ago. We don't want to repeat ourselves, but how do how do we avoid the danger of worldliness creeping into the church more generally in our churches in, in independent yeah. churches? Well, I mean, that is a perennial danger and the New Testament warns against it. And many of the New Testament letters are dealing with exactly that. And what happens is that scripture gets overthrown in favor of the kind of the views of contemporary culture. Um, they are seen as kind of normal. And so essentially what happens is people explain away what scripture says and reshape it um, to fit. Now, sometimes they do that cleverly. Sometimes they just do that overtly. So in the debates on sort of same-sex relationships, some seek to undermine the biblical teaching and use kind of exegetical arguments or argue about first century culture. Others just simply say, well, the Bible's no longer relevant in the contemporary culture. The Spirit's saying something different to us today. But in the end, they're both techniques for wanting to avoid what the word um, uh, kind of says. And we need to be on guard against that all all the time. I mean, you could say the Corinthian church is a classic example of worldliness coming into the church, mm. both in terms of leadership, in which the, the church begins to overturn the model of Jesus' servant, humble leadership in favor of a kind of powerful um, uh, kind of uh, leadership in the eyes of the world, which has high status that privileges people who are from a, a noble or intellectual philosophical kind of background. And that in its own way is subverting um, the model that Jesus set for the leadership of the church. That's worldliness coming in. And we've seen that sadly happen in lots of evangelical churches that patterns of leadership drawn from the world, from business, um, uh, have been brought into the church. And the result is that has been corrupting and biblical models of servantship have been kind of set aside. Um, and I think that the real challenge about how this happens is it, it, it comes into the church, but how does it become a majority that takes over the church? So what seems to have happened within the Church of England is this is this has not just come into the church, it's now become a majority view that is shared widely, so that when the church gathers to sort of discuss a doctrinal issue, the, the majority no longer hold to the, the biblical position. And that's simply a, a constant failure to exercise discipline and keep allowing people coming in, even though they don't agree with the doctrinal positions of the church. Again, some of them do that overtly, some of them do that covertly. But if churches don't protect their doctrinal position, if they don't maintain their behavioural standards, if they take a view that says we just include anybody because that's what's loving, um, in the end, that will become a, a majority that takes over the church. Um, and that's why sort of churches need to guard their doctrinal positions, why they need to be clear, why they need to ask people to sign up to those. 
and why they need to take action when people change their minds, change their views, or are revealed not to be mm. um, uh, kind of faithful to the positions they've, they've signed up to. I mean, that's essentially why in FIEC, we require all our churches and our pastors every year to reconfirm our doctrinal basis yeah. and our, our sort of policy statements, because we're saying um, it's not enough that you believed them when you joined. Um, if we're going to maintain our integrity, you have to keep on believing them. Mm. Um, so I think a, a measure of internal discipline that, that that says you can't belong, you can't exercise leadership, you can't have a voice, you can't have a say unless you buy into what it is we stand for. If, if you don't maintain that, you mm. will ultimately undermine the and, church. And I think we do have to guard against complacency, yeah. um, which is a form of pride, mm. thinking we're okay we've got that sorted. And just because we don't, we're not fighting that particular battle that our Anglican brothers and sisters are fighting doesn't mean that we are not susceptible to worldliness. And just because we have a doctrinal basis and ethos statements that protect us in some areas doesn't mean that worldliness can't creep in through another gap mm. or chink in the armour. And so um, I think we have got to be constantly on our guard. We've got to constantly humble ourselves mm. before God's mm. word and before what it teaches, that's really important because actually worldliness is very subtle. Um, it's invidious. You know, it, it sort of creeps in in a way which just undermines. And uh, I mean, I think John's right. You know, how do we stop it becoming just not just a you know, little minority view in the church, but a majority position? And that's a good question to ask. And, and, and part of the reason for asking that question is because actually it can happen without you noticing. Mm. And so we do need to be constantly asking that question, how do we fight against worldliness? And it, it comes back to a, a love for the Bible. It comes back to wanting to bring God's word to bear on all things. So, you know, you mentioned about, um, you know, embracing worldly leadership models. There is, there's wisdom in the world. And we do want to be able to dis discerning in a discerning way, look at that and see what's useful. But how do we exercise that discernment? We do it with the help of the, the spirit who opens up the scriptures to us and enables us to to see things through that lens. So, so once we start ditching that, we are in trouble. Romans 12, 1 and 2. John. The great danger point is which the point at which we want to be acceptable to the wider culture and, and be like them. So, so much of worldliness is... is, is so, off, we're, okay, well, let's push that a little bit. I mean, so it's, that's not perhaps for us same-sex marriage. Where else yeah. might that be touch points for us right at the moment? Um. Uh, yeah, I think any any way in which I've we, put you on the spot. Yeah, there, you you? Well, I mean, <laughs> one one part pressure on churches is is the whole issue of how they understand men and women in church. Right, okay. um, uh, sort of relationships. I mean, we're a group of churches that stands for the biblical conviction that leadership in in church and in marriage has been given by God to men. So we believe in male pastors, elders, overseers. We believe that within a kind of marriage, um, uh, sort of husbands are, are heads and wives are to submit to that. Now that's culturally massively under chat under attack. Um, in, in our wider culture, um, and at one level, in a, in a culture that sort of takes a particular view of what equality is, it's inevitable that people will find that mm. um, to be a sort of a, a set of convictions that don't fit with the culture, aren't attractive to the culture, might be perceived as alienating um, sort of women within within the wider culture. Um, and that, that's, a, that's an area in which actually do you shape your thinking in order to fit with what people expect, to be attractive to people? And very often worldliness comes in actually out of a drive to be more missionally effective. We kind of assume so that some of these things almost, are yeah. the barriers that stop mm. people coming to the church and, 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 and coming, yeah. coming to Jesus. 
Um, I mean, again, I mean, you could say money would be another area which we kind of barely touch on kind of mm-hmm. in the Christian world. Jesus has more to say about yeah. money money yeah. than anything else. Yeah. It's very easy to develop a form of Christianity which kind of justifies essentially a middle-class consumerist lifestyle yeah. um, and fails to hear the biblical teachings about the dangers of wealth and the, the needs for generosity. So that would be another yeah. example in which we kind of fit with the, the culture and actually le- legitimate an attitude towards money and material success um, uh, that that doesn't fit with kind of Jesus' radical teaching. I think I would add to that a a wrong view of equality. Okay. Um, So it's interesting. We we just recorded some podcasts yesterday thinking about work. And and I wonder if one of the ways we embrace worldliness is by essentially establishing hierarchy where the Bible sees none. Mm -hmm. So there are differences in the Bible, for example, between men and women. But actually, we also have an equality that we see in Scripture that we're made equally. All people are made equally in the image of God. And, and actually the world imposes hierarchies that just don't don't reflect that. So there are legitimate hierarchies, but equally we mustn't place more value on someone because they are a doctor rather than because they're a nurse, for example. And um, I, I think we do that a lot. And that's a, that's another form of worldliness I think that we see in the church. I think another one that we could point on is is, is thinking that the kingdom of God is brought about basically through politics. I think yep. we see that particularly yep. at the moment yep. that um, actually uh, church is being very divided over their political allegiances. Yep. And that seems to me fundamentally buying into a worldly model of um, what society should be like, how society society should be changed, how God's kingdom comes. And it's a lack of confidence in in the church, the word, the gathering of God's people. Mm. Um, and in a way, worldly mentality then comes in with that. The means begin to justify the ends of political kind of achievements. And we buy into the methodology of campaigning groups, lobby groups, political parties, um, because we think that that's what's needed to get things yeah, done. Sure. Mm. So that's uh, Synod. We need to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters yep. in the Anglican yep. church, don't we? What, what Another thing just to finish with that came out of Synod that was on the front page of a couple of the papers earlier in the week was this idea that the Church of England would debate uh, removing the he pronoun uh, for God. Now, I'm just going to give a lay answer to this. So there's two things I want to say. The first is the way I read the opening chapters of Genesis, we're created in God's image, but he made us male and female, didn't he? So therefore, uh, God is not man. We know that. Um, but also God refers to himself as a he, Jesus prays to the Father. So how do we how do we square this? Well, I think you just, you just answered all the questions. Oh, there we, we are then. Well, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that, is that, I mean, have I, I mean, that is the lay answer. Is that, is that, do I go deep enough there? I think that's pretty profound what you've described. You've gone back to the beginning. You've identified that actually God makes us in his image. There are, there are certain aspects of God's character and nature that we, we bear in that, in that sense, but we are not God. God mm. is not human. Mm. So God is not a human male, Correct. although he became a human male. He took on flesh um, in the person of Jesus. That's a slightly different question, though. Um, in, in, but I think we have to come back to God's word. I mean, I think the, the lay answer is actually the best answer. How does God refer to himself? He, had, mm. he refers to himself as he. I think that's exactly right. It, it's again, a slightly deeper answer. Do, from do we, do we, no, no, no. Do, <laughs> do, do, we, do we accept scripture or do we undermine scripture? Yeah. Um, actually, the, the starting point of the Bible is we cannot know God. He is incomprehensible to us. He is so beyond us, so different to us. We cannot possibly grasp um, what he's uh, kind of like. And the Bible doesn't speak of God as being male or female in quite the way that sort of we are as, as, as human beings. And we must just, mustn't just extrapolate the idea that God is just kind of a really big human being. Mm. Um, he's totally different to that. If you think about about the Trinity, the very idea of a God who is uh, sort of three and one at the same time. There's nothing like that in our human experience Mm, kind of at mm. all. And our minds are incapable of fully comprehending that. So we can only know God in as far as he has revealed to us. And I think actually how we think about God is hugely important. 
And it, it has been a failing of some Christian spirituality that they do think of God primarily as male. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why the Bible sort of prevents the making of images, the drawing of pictures of God, because they actually create an impression of what God is like that people then begin to believe, and that shapes their their kind of understanding. So you, multiple pictures of God as an, an old man with a white beard contribute to a certain understanding of what God is like that isn't itself scriptural. Mm. But God makes himself known to us in certain ways. Um, he's conveying something about himself to us in the language that he uses about himself. And we're not free to simply change that and make it up for ourselves, for our own benefits. Um, as has been pointed out, it's that the revisionists who want to change the language about God and change the pronouns about God are often the very ones who are saying of people, they should be addressed with the pronouns that they choose for themselves. <laughs> um, God has chosen to make himself known as Father. He has chosen in the Bible to speak of himself as He. And that, that is how we're to um, come to him. Yeah. Um, and we are called to respond to him um, in response to the revelation that he's He's given. We're not to make up our own alternative um, uh, sort of God because we will inevitably distort um, who he really is as we begin to do that. Brothers, it's been great to talk about the news as ever. Thank you for your insights. It's been good uh, to chat with you both uh, this morning. Do uh, rate, leave, review. This has been Independence, the FIEC podcast. Do share it with others so others can find it. Uh, thank you, John and Adrian. Uh, we'll speak to you again Thanks, soon. Phil. Thanks, Phil.